0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. When Moses, high up on Mount Sinai, begged God, show me your glory. God told him, I can't show you all of it, you die. But here's what I will do. I'll pass by in Exodus chapter 34 and allow you to see the back of my glory. In other words, just the fringes of my ways. God does that and as he passes by, Moses doesn't get to see the essence of God. He'd be dead. How does he behold God? Mainly through a declaration that God makes. You remember this? God reveals his glory by speaking to Moses and, today, to us. And what God says in Exodus 34, when he's declaring who he is, the Lord, the Lord. And do you remember the first adjective that God uses to describe who he is? A God who is merciful. The famous turn in Ephesians chapter 2 that we all know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and when you get to the turning part of Ephesians 2, but God, why does he save us? Being rich in mercy. So Paul agrees with God's declaration in the Old Testament. God's attributes are not fighting with each other, his justice, his love, his mercy, his grace. They're all perfectly one. And yet, when God decides to declare His essence, His glory to Moses on the mountain and to you, He chooses to begin this way. The Lord, that's me, the Lord. And He wants you to know, first, I'm a merciful God. When you come to the New Testament, Ephesians 2 and other cases, it all says the same thing. It all agrees that God is a merciful God. Peter agrees with Paul. He says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Notice, it's not just according to his mercy. According to his great mercy. But God, Paul Ephesians 2, not just being merciful, being rich in mercy. First description of himself merciful. So what does God want you to know about himself? He's a merciful God. Paul elsewhere calls him the father of mercies. You ever thought about the S at the end of that? Not the father of mercy. It's fitting he's the father of mercies because he abundantly demonstrates mercy over and over and over again. So he's a father of mercies in your life. So when the Bible talks about the mercy of God, the one thing it never does is speak of it in a stingy way, as if it has to be forced out like a rotten tooth out of a mouth. God's mercy is flowing out of him rather powerfully, like a cataract, like like water that can't be held back. That's the sort of mercy that flows always from God. Is that the sort of God that you think about when you think of God? Because that is the God of the Bible. It's right to remember this because we are prone to lighten the mercy of God. What that means for some here is that even as I'm speaking, I see it in your mind, not really, but I know even as I'm speaking, you're going to those many passages of Scripture where God is just, powerful, and brings judgment and condemnation. Why are you trying to contradict me? Why are you doing that in your mind? Look, those are true. And yet when God presents himself to us, he begins here, mercy. Not more merciful than just, but God's justice displaying itself in judgment is a reaction, a good and right and the only right one, to people sinning, to things being broken. But when he wants his people to know about him, this is where he begins. He is a merciful God. We also try to lighten God's mercy at times, just because it's such a common thought to us. It's like table salt. And you don't think about salt in your food that much unless there's too much of it or not enough. And if there's the right amount, you don't think of it at all. And God's mercy becomes like that to us. We're so used to it. It's in everything. It sustains our whole life. It brings us salvation. It brought rain. It brings sunshine. And we begin to lighten it because we take His mercy for granted. Of course, He's a merciful God. God's mercy, which is His kindness that He displays, especially to the sufferer and to the sinner, to those who most need His kindness, that's us, that mercy, may we never take it for granted, even if it's so common in our life. Maybe one way that you can fight against the tendency to lighten the mercy of God is to just imagine what would your life be if God were the same in every respect except mercy? If we remove the mercy of God, which can never happen, praise God for that, then do you know where you would be this morning? You would not, I promise you, be sitting on a nice cushioned seat with air conditioning. You and I, if there were no mercy in God's bosom, would be this morning suffering an eternity of conscious torment in hell. That would be God's justice rightly displayed toward us and if God had no mercy, that's where we would be. Is this what we want to take for granted? No! No! God's mercy is the reason you are here right now. Hearing the oracles of God surrounded by the people of God in a country which has its many problems but you have a degree of liberty that the world in history has never known and conveniences that it definitely has never known and all of these are mercies in your life and if God was not merciful they'd all be gone you wouldn't know one of them God is a merciful God America's first great theologian and philosopher, many of you know him. His name was Jonathan Edwards. His collected works are still housed at Yale. He was the first president there. But Jonathan Edwards famously wrote about a holy God when he looks at us in our sin and our natural state. How does he see us? And this is accurate. He, in our sin, a holy God sees us as some loathsome spider, Something foul, contrary to his being in our sin. And it's as if he suspends us by a slender thread over a pit of hell. And Edwards concludes the only thing preventing God from dropping us in is, quote, his mere good pleasure. I don't say that to be morbid or morose or something strange like that. Quite the contrary. If that's really the way a holy God sees us, then what is that mere good pleasure of God that has not only kept you out of hell, but for most here, who are, you who are in Christ, it will keep you out of hell forever. What kind of mere good pleasure is that? That's mercy. You don't deserve that. You didn't even ask for that. When you were living in your sin and God looked on your blighted plight and saw the direction of your life had mercy upon you and had arranged in history the crushing of His own beloved Son, which was necessary for you to escape judgment and to be in paradise forever. That is the mere good pleasure of God. That is the mercy of God. Do you see why the Bible writers say, great mercy, (laughs) the riches of His mercy? Or God from the mountain, the Lord, the Lord, first, merciful. May we not lose that. And to help us not lose that, we have a text set before us, the continuing study of Jonah. And if there is any lesson for us in these first five verses of the second part of the book, it is, wow, God is merciful. So let's see that. And we'll explain why that is, but let's just see the text first. The mercy of God displayed here in Jonah chapter 3, looking at these first five verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You've seen with me, if you've been here since the beginning of Jonah, this prophet, Jonah, who in chapter one, God came to him, said, arise, go to Nineveh and proclaim against it because of its evil, and Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction, got on a boat, sailed away as far as he could from Nineveh, because as a good Israelite, he hated the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital of their enemy, the Assyrians. Jonah did not want to go there. God has him thrown off the boat in a storm and swallowed by a fish, and after three days in that whale gut, or fish gut, if you will, Jonah finally repents and prays God you're right I'm wrong. So three weeks ago we saw God had the fish spit Jonah back up on shore and says let's try this again and that's what we have in our text right here. Now in order to magnify God's mercy through this text we're going to be looking at God's mercy as it's expressed to two parties. First, God's mercy to Jonah. That will be most of our time because it's a big mercy. But secondly, God's mercy to Nineveh. So let's see God's mercy to Jonah. Let's see his mercy to Nineveh here. And you will see it is a big mercy. It is not a small type of a mercy. So let's just start by looking at the mercy God shows in our text to Jonah. Look again here at these first three verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, it's important, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, or maybe to it, really, the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Stop there. Now, if the book of Jonah started right here, we would really, really respect Jonah. (laughs) Because God tells him, do three things. Get up, go, proclaim. And we see here in the text, that's exactly what he did. Verse 3, he arose and went. That's two of them. Verse 4, he called out. Wow, a perfectly obedient prophet. (laughs) And verse 2 again even emphasizes this point, call out against it, the message that I tell you, God is being exact in the command. You say exactly what I tell you. And what's interesting here is the exactness of the obedience is emphasized when it says, he arose and went to Nineveh, what? According to the word of the Lord. So if Jonah started in chapter 3, we'd have a great admiration for this prophet. He would be listed among the many righteous persons of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, you know this, one of the greatest marks of being a righteous person is that God would give a command and you would do it. We see this all the way back with Noah. You remember, God had commanded Noah and Noah acted according to the word of the Lord. This was true of Abraham when God said, take your son whom you love, go up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And it says what? Abraham got up early in the morning and went. This was true of David, a man after God's own heart, because he did what God told him to do in most cases, not all. We would look at Jonah and go, wow, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit, if this is all we had, because he does exactly what God commands him. And he even says, according to the word of the Lord, That's what he did, keeps the three commands. The only problem is that the book of Jonah does not begin here. (laughs) So we've had two chapters leading up here. In fact, as soon as you begin chapter three, if you know the book well, you're already thinking back to chapter one. Why? Because these verses are almost word for word identical to chapter one, except in what Jonah did there. So this was how chapter 1 began. Do you remember this? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evils come up before me. And Jonah got up to flee. Besides the fleeing part, that looks a whole lot like what we're looking at today. It's a reset, if you will, of what happened back there. So the way Jonah responds to God's command in our text, it would be impressive if we didn't have chapters 1 and 2 or 4. If you only had chapter 3, you'd really like Jonah. He'd have done a really good job. Uh, but unfortunately, you have all the rest as well. This is almost reminds you of what you see so often now in the news, where you'll have a celebrity or a politician, and someone will go and find something from their past that they had said in an interview or that they had posted on social media. And then that casts dispersion upon them, That's what's going on with Jonah for us. When we read chapter 3, wow, great guy, but chapters 1 and 2, he's got a bad history. It's true here for Jonah. Now, God had every right to punish Jonah. Think about in 1 Kings chapter 13, do you remember the story of the prophet from Judah who God had told to go and give a prophecy against an altar, and then God told him, when you're done, come immediately back. And the prophet was on his way back, and a false prophet came and told him, God says, actually stop and eat and drink with me. The prophet does, and when he does, the false prophet tells him, Because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord, you've not kept the command the Lord your God commanded you. You've come back and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, don't eat bread or drink water here. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And then the prophet said, or then the text says, and as that prophet went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. When we begin chapter three of Jonah, if it began, then... A lion of the Lord came to Jonah and killed him, that wouldn't be wrong. Jonah was a prophet. He bore God's name. He had been in rebellion two chapters now, and so God had every right to punish him. The first Kings 13 prophet had done, in some sense, less than Jonah. He just stopped to eat and drink because of a false prophecy. Jonah was in direct contrariety, he was directly against the will of God, and he knew it. And he was running hard. So A lion would be expected. Some judgment of God upon Jonah. That would not be surprising at the beginning of chapter 3. What is surprising is the beginning of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I don't know about you, but if you have someone you've told to do something and they rebelled this blatantly against you your patience might be done. (laughs) Move on, get somebody else. If you hired a contractor to come and work on your house and they totally botched your roof and they're charging you double and they're being stubborn in every possible way, you go online and you put a bad review and you fire them and you get a different contractor. But that in effect is what's happened with Jonah to God in chapters one and two. And then chapter three begins, you still have the job came to him the second time. In other words, Jonah gets a second chance. The question is, why does Jonah get a second chance? Because God is merciful. There's no other explanation for it. There's none. You can point back to Jonah's prayer in the whale and say it was such a contrite and humble prayer. There's some truth to that, but have you read chapter four? (laughs) Jonah's still not a great guy. The reason that Jonah gets the job the second time that he gets the prestige and honor of being, not just of the people of God, but a prophet, after he's failed as bad as you can fail, is because God's merciful. That's it. Period. Close the book. That's the end of the story. It's the mercy of God. It's like what God had said in Exodus 33, when Moses was begging to see his glory, God said to him... I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And God decides to be merciful to Jonah. That's why the word of the Lord comes to him the second time. Now you have probably, if you're a believer, wondered before this, why does God save me? Think about all the neighbors you have, even those that maybe seem more virtuous than you at times. They're nice and friendly and they don't know Christ. Why do I know Christ? Maybe you have a family who doesn't know Christ. They are lost. And you're the only one in your family who has come to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Are you so much smarter than your family that they just can't get it and you do? Or as we've heard today, this morning in the Sunday School, about the unreached people group, so much of the world, millions of people who have never heard the message of the gospel of Christ and never will possibly, unless we go, so let's go. Why is it that you not only heard it, but God opened your heart like Lydia's to receive the message of the gospel and to believe? Why you? What sets you apart from everybody else? Why are you a believer? And as believers, we respond, it's not because of me. It's because of God. Specifically, because God is merciful. God is a God who gives second chances after we've botched the first, the first chance over and over and over, and he gives the second time, the second chance chance. Look, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, just as much as anyone else. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among them, we too all lived in the passions of the flesh. Paul says, like the rest. But notice now, there's the rest, there's you. You're all similarly sinful from the time of birth, like the rest, but now... You come to Christ, and there's a difference. Why? Here's why. But God being rich in mercy, that's the difference. God was rich in mercy. It flowed out of him like a waterfall. You didn't have a bucket in a well trying to pull up God's mercy to yourself. You were dead, and God's mercy pummels over you. And because he's not just merciful, but he's rich in mercy, then... The word of the Lord came to you the second time. You rebelled the first time. You heard the gospel. You knew you should follow Jesus. You knew your lifestyle was wrong and you didn't care. You didn't change it. You continued in your sin. You kept sailing toward Tartus in rebellion against God. That was the first time. And it would be completely just of God to close up shop and say, I'm done with you. But if you're in Christ, he didn't. Because he's merciful, the word of the Lord came to you the second time. And he opened your heart to hear it and to obey. You should, this morning, because of that first time, just like with Jonah, have a record of guilt against you that would condemn you forever. Everything you've ever done, thought, and said against you. But do you know where that record of guilt is now? As if it was written on some very long piece of paper and nailed to the cross. It's gone. It's not on you anymore. Why? Because God is merciful. You should be alienated from God, lost without hope in the world. But you're a child of God. Why? Because God is merciful. And Jonah should have drowned at the bottom of the sea and he's not. Why? Because the God he serves, as he knows, is a merciful God. Is that the God that you serve? Why you and not another? Why do angels rebel and receive no mercy? Why do generations go by, never hear the gospel, and millions today similarly, and you heard it, and you believed it, and you will live in paradise forever? To the praise of his glorious grace. To extol the mercy of God. It's the only answer. When the Son of God, Jesus, appeared. Just pausing here on the first verse, if you'll allow me. But when the Son of God, Jesus, appeared to display the character of God to us, what did he show you? When you read the Gospels, what is the attribute of Christ that stands out to you? He flips some tables. Let's not deny that. Isn't it his mercy? Isn't it him touching lepers? Look, go to the table of Jesus and you expect to find the holy sitting around him because he is God, holy. You know who's sitting at Jesus' table? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Is this because Jesus has some weird affinity for tax collectors and prostitutes? It couldn't be anything more different than Jesus. It's nothing in them. It's not in the leper. It's not in the beauty of his skin that's falling apart. It is all in Jesus. He's merciful and he's showing that he is merciful. That's why you go to his table and you find prostitutes and tax collectors. Go to his table and find the tax collectors, Zacchaeus included, and there they are sitting around having table fellowship with Jesus they don't deserve that. They have bowed down to Mammon. God told them the first time, you shall have no other God but me. And they refused it. God on the boat went to Mammon and bowed before Mammon and, the, and Rome were cut off from their countrymen because they were greedy and wanted that money. And Jesus says, here's a table, here's a seat at the table for you to come and sit. Because God is merciful. Know who else is sitting at the table with Jesus? Prostitutes, sexually immoral persons who, when they come to Jesus, the Pharisees say within themselves, if he knew, if he knew her past, if he knew what sort of a person she was, sexually immoral, he wouldn't even let her touch him. Unclean. Jesus let her touch him. He pulled a chair out and said, You sit here. Sexually immoral. The tax collectors, those from whom polite society shuns away. The Pharisees would like to see these people under a pile of stones, and Jesus wants to see them at his table, sitting with him to hear his gospel, his message, because he is merciful. It's as if Jesus had all these sinners at his table, and he extends his hand, and you know what's inside it? A second chance, because they botched the first one. But because God is merciful, he extends a second chance. Look, are you, who are you? You the prostitute? You the tax collector? You Jonah? You the Ninevites? Just how sinful are you? Bring all of your sins in one large pile up. And we use them as an excuse for why we're not allowed to go in the house and sit at table with Jesus, the holy son of God, because look how sinful we are. If you're sinful, you qualify for the mercy of God. And he wants you there at the table. Look at this man who's seated seated there at the table. You know who that is among the prostitutes and the tax collectors? That's Jonah. That's the prophet from the north, just as rebellious. Yet the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is how mercy works. It is not deserved. If you have rejected God as your first choice, he this morning offers you himself again. As a second choice. Or if you are a believer and you know Christ, but like Jonah, the wayward prophet, you are wandering from the path. He says, come back. There's a second time for you too. There are many times consequences for certain kinds of service. If we as believers enter into an unrepentant sin, when we do repent, if there's a person in leadership who falls into certain kinds of sin, it would be right to say, You're forgiven if you repent, but you're not going to be in that same position. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about, are you still useful to the Lord? Are you still accepted by Him? Does He still love you? Is He still going to be involved in your life? Is this the end of your story, the end of chapter 2, and we are done? Or is there a chapter 3, verse 1, for you? The word of the Lord came the second time. And I'm saying, there is. There was for Jonah. Are you worse than him? (laughs) He's pretty bad. This is the mercy of God. And you see what Jonah was preaching to the Ninevites. Verse 4, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. That might make you feel like God of wrath coming in. God is a God of wrath against sin. That's why that message is preached. And yet you're going to see that when that message is preached, just like from this pulpit, we preach and say, if you don't trust Christ, there is hell. But even when we say that, and when God has Jonah say that, it's because he wants you to repent of the cold, rainy, sinful outside and come into the table and sit with him because he is a merciful God. Now, if there's any reservation in your mind because you're thinking of your own situation, how it's unique in this way and that way, and so does God's mercy really reach you in greatness and in richness? And you might not be convinced because you're thinking, well, exegetically, the difference in the Old Testament, and the new, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever your reasons are, we all do that to ourselves. And I don't know why. Let's just move now then from God's mercy to one rebellious prophet, Jonah. And just to make the mercy really extravagant for you. Let's multiply it from one to 120,000 persons, all more wicked for a longer period of time than Jonah. (laughs) Would that convince you? Okay, let's look at that as we look at God's mercy now to Nineveh in this passage. Because that is who God still wants Jonah to go and preach to, the Ninevites. And we have said before that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. They were to the east of Israel And they were Israel's great enemy. In fact, long later, they would come, not that long actually, but they would come decades later and would actually destroy Israel and take the people away captive in a monstrous way. There would be immense bloodshed and such evils committed in the name of power and conquest by this wicked people Assyria. They're pagans. They worship false gods. They're bad. So when God said, go to Nineveh and preach, Jonah knew, oh no, oh no, I know that God's merciful and if I preach judgment, they might repent and he might forgive them. (laughs) That's why he's been running. We'll see that later in Jonah. Yet look at this. When you get to verse three, it might have stood out to you that why are we talking about the size of Nineveh? It's unusual. He says, he pauses the text pauses the story and says, now, listen, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Part of that is because you need to know that for the rest of the story, because he starts going one day in and preaching, etc. But there's a bigger reason for that, because the greatness or the size of Nineveh was pointed out even in chapter one. God said, go and preach to that city, that great city. Here it's repeated. It's a great city. In fact, our text calls it an exceedingly great city, which literally in the Hebrew is a great city, a city great before or toward God. Seems to mean, relatively speaking, even in God's estimation, this is a big place. This is a great city. We find out at the very end, the last verse of Jonah in chapter 4, that there are 120,000 Ninevites living inside the city. He says it takes three days to travel, probably what he's saying is throughout the city or the city and its environs. Three days! That's a long time. This is a big city. Why are we talking about the size of this city? Because this whole city is about to receive God's mercy. And if it's a big city, and everyone from the greatest to the least receives God's mercy, that is a lot of mercy. It's one thing for Jonah, this one man, to get mercy. Now you multiply that by 120,000. Wicked Ninevites, to the Jewish mind, first hearing this, they're as wicked as they come. And 120,000 of them, in the very capital of the most evil empire, the one that the Jewish people feared, if they all receive God's mercy, what kind of mercy are we talking about? This is not some rural town with a few scattered inhabitants and some hometown values and everybody's kind of nice to each other. We're not talking about that. This is a massive metropolis. This is an urban setting and people are killing each other. Immorality is rampant. Pagan worship, the true God is not known and not worshipped it's so evil that in chapter 1, God said, their evil has come up before me. There's something unique about how evil this city is. And if they can get God's mercy, then that is a lot of mercy. Can they get God's mercy? Yeah, doesn't get any more evil than this. Can they get God's mercy? I don't know. Think in your, How do we... What do we compare this to? Think about... I'm not trying to pigeonhole cities here. Just think about one of our urban settings. Think about a Chicago... imagine if the entire city of chicago experienced a revival and everyone from the greatest to the least everyone no exception turned to god in repentance said have mercy on us and god grants them all mercy and salvation let's pray for that that'd be awesome (laughs) that's what's going on here only it was a foreign nation, so you could think of this as some nation in Afghanistan or some city in Afghanistan or in some other Middle Eastern place. Or This is really a remarkable thing. Is God's mercy so great that he can do that? Well, look at the text. Jonah began to go into the city going, it was really just one day's journey at first. So he hasn't even gone through the whole city yet because it takes three. But in one day's journey, he's calling out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That makes sense. This doesn't make sense. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. Notice, from the greatest of them, the important people in the palaces, we'll see that next week in the king and the nobles, to the least of them, even animals they dress in sackcloth, we'll see, but to the very least of the people. We'll see more of this ritual repentance last week, but I just want to make this one point. Do you see what happened there? <laughs> it's easy to read this and think, oh, okay, next verse. No, God's mercy to the center of wickedness in the ancient world. It's exactly what Jonah feared, and it's exactly what God will do. Is this like this much mercy we're talking about here? Is it like, how much mercy are we talking about here? rich mercy, great mercy. And I just beg you, take yourself, because the devil does this, and you know this, that before you know Christ, usually, you think you're fine with God. You're not that worried about your state before God because you're a decent fellow or lady. Then you come to know Christ, and the devil totally switches his tactics, and now you feel like, I cannot go to God into the Christian penalty box. He will not accept me. Are you as evil as 120,000 of the most wicked, lifelong sinners of the ancient world? (laughs) Take all your sin. Does it equal that? Because that's what God pardons when they turn from that sin and come to him. When they come and knock, can we sit at the table? And He pulls up 120,000 chairs, 120,001 because Jonah's sitting there too, and he welcomes all the sinners to come to him. And he welcomes you too. Whatever your past sins may be, whatever you struggle with now. We're a lot like Jonah because we're going to see he's going to go sit on a hillside and wait for God to destroy the city with enthusiasm, unfortunately. But that's what we expect God to be. If we have sin, we expect God to be frowning and smash us. Well, if you don't repent of it and you die, that is what will happen. But look, You're all here. You're alive right now. God's mercy has brought you here. His word is coming to you a second time, and he's extending mercy to you again. Is your sin too strong for God's mercy? It's the point of this passage is that God is merciful to Jonah, his own person, his own prophet, also to these foreigners. This is really a mercy that's beyond the strength of our logic. That's why we usually get it wrong when we're trying to think about it, when we try to think about what God's attitude is toward ourselves, toward our enemies. God is a merciful God. He judges. We're not denying that whatsoever. But anyone, anyone who wants to come to him, he pulls up a chair and says, come sit. He turns no one away. All the Father calls will come to Jesus, and of all who come to him, he casts out no one, absolutely no one, no exception. Nasty, wicked, Ninevite who's killed people, come on in. Evil prophet who's been in rebellion against God for two chapters and will again in chapter four, come on in. You're a prostitute, sexually immoral, come on in. Are you a tax collector, lived your life for money in the American dream? Come on in. What are you? He says, come on in. We think we can't come in, and scripture says, draw near to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy. God longs to be merciful to you. You may say, well, great for the Ninevites, but I'm a believer and I've sinned against the light and I've been wayward as a Christian. I've dishonored the name of Christ. That is true, just like Jonah, right? Who was a prophet of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to him A second time. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for all of your promises of mercy to us. None of which we deserve and all of which we have. And I pray you would help us as we leave here to cling closely to your mercy and not to let it go. To remember how you pardoned Jonah, how you were long-suffering with him in his rebellion, even as he continues to struggle, we will see you sent him on mission a second time, even after he'd sinned egregiously, and with the Ninevites who lived a whole life of evil, and idol-worship you when they turned Extended your mercy to all of them. And I want to pray for your people who are here, if any feel that they can't show their face in your presence, that you would not give them some blind optimism in coming into your presence, but just the sure foundation of Scripture that calls them to come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus pleading the merits of our Savior of you our great high priest and coming on the basis of your blood Lord in this uh, frightful cultural moment I pray we would have courage that comes from knowing not suspecting not wondering about but knowing that we are accepted in the beloved and our sins are paid for help us to believe your grace boldly so that we may cling to you all our life and be welcomed into halls of glory at the end of it it is for the sake of your name we pray